Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Okay, this episode is a little bit different in that I speak with a policy expert rather than a frontline leader. Today's conversation is with Dr. Simon Kay, and the timing could not be better. Simon is a senior researcher at New Local. This is a think tank and a network of councils, and their mission is to transform public services and unlock community power. So why is this the perfect time for this discussion? Well, if you're listening to this on the day of publication, then the Conservative Party conference was last week. And a big focus of that conference was on levelling up and devolution and what the right level to empower councils, communities and individuals is with a real focus on the overarching levelling up agenda and how you actually rejuvenate some of the areas around the country which have suffered decline. So this is where Simon comes in. Simon is an expert on Eleanor Ostrom and her thinking. Eleanor Ostrom was the first woman to ever win a Nobel Prize for economics, and her specialism was localism. So during the discussion, Simon and I talk about how Ostrom's thinking can be applied to things like climate change, to policing, and how local resources are used. So this is extremely relevant for the discussion that we're having at the minute about levelling up and how best to do that. Simon's organisation, New Local, alongside the New Social Covenant Unit, have just published a policy paper written by 10 new Conservative MPs. It's called Trusting the People, and it makes the case for community power. And this is, again, extremely relevant and very aligned to the thinking of Eleanor Ostrom. So uh, if you think about it, the UK is one of the most centralised states in the Western world. So there is real space for this thinking. And I would strongly recommend this episode for any central government policymakers and programme designers who are awaiting the outcome of the spending review. If you want to design a programme that actually works, then the thinking of Eleanor Ostrom should be front of mind. So Simon explains all this much better than I do, so let's hear from him. 
Simon, you're really welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I'm really excited about our conversation today. But before I start, could you say a little bit about who you are? Yeah, happy to. And thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm not a radical reformer myself, but I, maybe I do know a few things about people who <laughs> could be called. <laughs> you definitely do. I think you definitely do. Yeah, maybe, maybe one day I'll aspire to being one myself. So I'm, I'm Simon Kay. Uh, I'm a senior policy researcher at an organization called New Local, which is, uh, which is an interesting organization, actually. It's, it's part think tank. It's part network. Uh, it convenes a big network of local government as well as other organizations who are all kind of forward thinking and innovative and interested in what we call community power. Uh, and that is the big emphasis of our research as well is talking about the capacities and capabilities of communities, of localities to get things done. So loads of localism, loads of community power. Um, before I joined the policy world, I was uh, an academic, uh, I, I should say a junior academic, and I decided to get more kind of uh, involved in in hands-on uh, and direct research uh, rather than kind of the, the traditional teaching and uh, and peer review academic process and uh, and maybe the, if any academics listen to this they might understand that urge but i i acted on it unlike them i didn't have their stick with itness i guess yeah so that's me well no thank you for that and i think um one of the things i've been impressed with about your writing and publications is that they're they're very accessible they don't read to be overly academic there's obviously a lot of thought behind them but they're very accessible so we will get on to talk about Eleanor Ostrom which is our main main topic but you you make it all very accessible which I think is so important I know a little bit about New Local because I've previously interviewed your chair Donna Hall who is a real champion for local government and it feels that there's a real moment for local government and community power right now. Would you would you agree? Yeah, well, we, we certainly hope so. And um, and yeah, over the last couple of years, two, three years, we've seen just a lot more traction around some of these ideas. I bet we're going to talk about some of the reasons why um, one of the big, big shifts came when new local new local government network as it was then called published its community paradigm something that i know that don is very passionate about as well which kind of really crystallized some of these these movements about how you can address some of the huge challenges we face by involving communities more and actually i think recent issues challenges policies um around pandemic response around the challenges thrown up by brexit uh have also sort of focused minds on what it means for example for people to take back control what it means to satisfy people's uh, desire their longing for more democratic involvement to rebuild their trust in institutions to really capitalize on the enormous capacities and latent abilities that lie in localities in local government and local institutions but also just in, in neighborhoods that we saw emerge uh, especially in that first big lockdown there's all sorts of reasons why there seems to be a sort of a, a moment building here yes. uh, and we're, we're sort of excited potentially to be part of that no i i completely agree i think that there is a moment but i think it helps that there is some real intellectual grounding for this. So the, the main topic of conversation for us today is the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2009. So let's start by who she was. Yeah, no, so Eleanor Ostrom, obviously a big, big source of, of interest for me, and I think a growing one for, for many other people. But overall, in the UK, at least, I think something of an overlooked figure, and, and maybe we can 
we can talk about why a little bit. And I should say before before I give you kind of the the very very potted bio that the, the kind of the key if anyone's interested in Eleanor Ostrom, her work, her thinking, and her life, there's a book that's that's really worth looking at by someone called Vlad Tarko. It's a it's a biography of Eleanor Ostrom. I'd recommend it uh, to anyone. Uh, so Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, was born in California in 1933. Not the wealthiest, most salubrious, you know, uh, uh, start to life. She, she described herself at some point as a, as a poor kid. She used those words. So some challenges, um, uh, there as well. And she, she, she grew up in a, in a household, uh, uh, where her parents had divorced, which is to some extent unusual at that time. Um, and like a lot of women at that time throughout her school career, she was discouraged from pursuing technical subjects, including maths, which would have been a really important part of, of her work later on and sort of had an interesting kind of knock on effect to the kind of work she ended up doing. So like a lot of women not encouraged to do technical work or technical subjects, her own mum wasn't even that keen on the idea of her going to, to college, going to university at all, couldn't really see the point. Uh, but she did it anyway. Um, ultimately, that lack of maths, of technical expertise in her school background, in her school career, led to her being rejected from her first application for a PhD course in economics at UCLA. So instead, she entered to do graduate studies in political science instead of economics. And she got her PhD in 1965. And in a way, it's sort of good that she entered that way because that led her to become a political economist rather than like a pure mathy econo- yes. economist. Yes. And so we get a very different sort of version of Eleanor Ostrom. There's an interesting what if there. <laughs> if she'd yes. uh, if she'd gone in for pure econ, we might not have had some of these insights, perhaps. So it, it's an interesting one. Um, and it was during that PhD that she really started to explore over all these borders, over the border between politics and economics, uh, as I said, but also and at the heart of almost all of her work, the border that lies between people and the contexts, the systems, environmental um, or, or the wider context that they exist in and interact with, whether there's a border there, whether there's a kind of an overlap and, and how that very complex system really operates. That's the kind of the beating heart of all of her interests. So in her PhD, she, she, she ran straight into a very difficult first problem, which is just how enormously hard it is to sustain a natural resource when lots of different people have access to it. It's so easy to ruin a resource or an asset or a space or a field or, or whatever it is, anything that's valuable by accident when lots of people are trying to get the best out of it. And that's the idea that sometimes gets called the tragedy of the commons. Ostrom saw this as a governance problem. And she saw it not as an inevitable tragedy. And ultimately, she built up such an enormous empirical body of scholarship and theory around how communities themselves can respond to those challenges that she got herself that first Nobel Prize in economics ever awarded to a woman. Yeah. Um, to, to put the, the, the kernel of this in, in people's minds, what, in essence, was her work about what was she championing without getting into too much detail because we will get into a lot of detail but just so people know exactly what it is that she was arguing that was a bit different uh well i mean she was she was doing a bunch of different things she she was championing context the the absolutely crucial um nature of context to the things we try to achieve as human beings um that that might sound incredibly obvious just to say it like that but she was she was operating at a time uh where there was this very clear 
assumption or set of assumptions that what you needed to get things done to make good decisions, to manage resources, to achieve efficiencies, what have you, was to regulate the way that people operate, the way that communities function. And you can do that. Basically, the, the assumption goes, the classical assumption goes, you do that in one of two ways. You do it through state monopoly, state control and regulation, or you do it through market forces. Um, you do it through privatization, enclosure, partition uh, and privatization and let the market take control. And maybe there's some kind of third way. We've heard that term before between those two options. But Ostrom wasn't a third wayist. She was saying, oh, no, you don't you don't have to assume that people can't manage their own affairs under the right conditions. In fact, they do it all the time. And she was the one who sort of shone a light on that. And that was kind of the core of it was this idea of self-governance of of the capacity to to respond well to context if you give people the autonomy and the power and, and yes. the insight they need. Yeah. So uh, as you were suggesting there, there is quite a bit of historical context here. And um, you know, most of the thinking post Second World War on both the left and the right has been about large scale solutions, as you said, focused on either the state doing everything or everything being left to the market and various shades of that. And I think what you're saying is that Ostrom's thinking rejected that continuum and actually wanted to do the good things from a different angle. Yeah. And and I think it's important to say that she didn't. It's not that she invented anything particularly here. She she just did the she did the really hard labor of of finding stuff that was already going on and that didn't fit neatly into the categories that have been established by existing scholarship, by existing assumptions and say, well, (laughs) your categories are all very well, but there's lots of stuff going on that just doesn't fit with the idea of state regulation, managing everything, partitioning everything out, giving people what they need because it knows best or that kind of the big 80s response to that late 70s to 80s response of marketization of laissez-faire of oh let let the let the private sector manage it all and compete its way to efficiency you can set both of those aside and you can see that there are things happening around the world there are communities that are managing their own affairs their own resources more democratically and more trustingly and by the way achieving more efficiency getting yeah. more sustainability out of the resources and the decisions they make which is a really crucial thing it's not just a, it's not just a comparable system it's sometimes under the right conditions it's it's one that can outperform the traditional model of state versus market indeed indeed um so let's get into a bit more detail on some of the specifics of elnor ostrom's thinking so she was very interested in scale and particularly the appropriate scale for effective decision-making and action. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so one of Ostrom's big, big themes, if you like, was this idea of of proximity, of of the direct involvement of people in their own affairs. Um, and she looked at this from a theoretical perspective, but she also did empirical work on it. So on the theoretical side, really she was talking about what it means to be really democratic and her position on that, which she says very clearly at, at various points in her career, was that there's there's really no such thing as a as a mass like nation state scale mass public democracy that's worthy of the name that you need that local dimension. You need a truly empowered and participatory local 
response in order for meaningful democracy to be playing out and for those decisions to be improved by it and to have more legitimacy because people are engaging in it simply because of if you like the the, the brute logistical challenge <laughs> that comes with having so many people trying to weigh in on a decision the result in most of our democratic processes today is that the that people don't get to engage very much at all they don't have many incentives to educate themselves or to become experts if you like on the things that they're deciding on and they outsource all of that decision making to a bunch of representatives who may or may not do a good job real democracy though is about as Ostrom put it having as much control over the things that are relevant to you and that are playing out local to you as possible and uh, and that was that was really important that that concept of direct involvement and scale there's also a empirical bedrock to this which is that at that close scale you can start to understand the nuances the particular contextual stuff that's playing out in so much more detail that everyone comes in as a kind of an unknowing expert on how things should be designed and delivered and played out um and so if they can if we can unlock that information if we can unlock that local context knowledge then actually you can you can improve things as well and there's there's evidence to suggest that that happens so one big case study here that Ostrom worked on in her career and that came to kind of renewed relevance in the way we talk about Eleanor Ostrom and talk about these issues last year um, during the George Floyd um, response during the whole the protests around defund the police and and uh, and racial justice in the way the police relate to them. Eleanor Ostrom worked with the police, studied the police for a great deal of time and she developed a uh, 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 a bunch of very clear ideas around the evidence that she dug up, which is that if you consolidate and formalize policing, you lose that community touch, then policing will no longer enjoy so much trust and so much direct um, uh, approval from the public that it obviously needs that relationship with because it needs to police it. So scale is incredibly important. It's important for the way we organize our public services is important for the way we design our organizations and our teams and a lot of the work that i've been doing around uh, ostrom's evidence base and her career revolves around us extrapolating from those ideas to the wider system to the way we think about scale context and knowledge and organizational design and it's it's just potentially such a big game changer particularly because we're in such a managerial centralized you might say infantilizing system here here in the uk so did she have a strong view on how that power should be exercised? So was she a fan of representative democracy? Was she more into citizens' assemblies and things like that? What were her views on, on that? So this is this is quite tricky because while, of course, she's over the course of a, of a very um, uh, a productive academic career, she's wrote about all sorts of things at some point. She wasn't a democratic theorist and she didn't she didn't lend, uh, you know, a, a direct kind of academic contribution to, to the ideas of what kind of representation is best. She was a she was a, a Democrat, a, th- a thoroughgoing small D Democrat and uh, and someone who believed that that scale is very important for the nature of democracy, if you like. So I think there's a there's a quote in one of her papers saying that you can't hope to have meaningful engagement and meaningful democracy at the scale of the nation or even at the town hall it needs to be at the scale of neighborhoods of streets themselves of, of small towns yeah. and 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 on that was the kind of you know practical engagement that she thought of as as being democratic 
the political systems that surround that could be extremely varied, I think, from Ostrom's perspective. And and one of her big, really big mantras uh, that I think is really relevant if you need an understanding of Eleanor Ostrom was the idea that there's no such thing as a panacea. There are no panaceas. Even her own ideas about direct citizen involvement and community engagement, there, there is no one size fits all fix anywhere. And so there's no silver bullet and you can't even point to that as saying this is the way to do things. And that means that different forms of government, different kinds of representation, they could all have a role to play. They could all contribute to a, a well-governed system, to, to, to an efficient outcome and a good outcome. Um, but what she was really concerned with was that when things operate at the local level, you achieve a different kind of dynamic, a different kind of relationship between people and systems. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very clear. Thank you. Um, I, I think that idea of there being no one size fits all, no, no panacea, no silver bullet, call it what you will, is very relevant to the current debates and discussions going on around devolution, local government reorganization. I think, uh, it would be really tidy for the government if there was a one size fits all solution. I think if you remember back to John Prescott's efforts to set up regional assemblies, uh, you know, that that just didn't work, um, and and it seems that it will be different ideas and different solutions for proper local representation being developed in different parts of the country, depending on what the characteristics, what the of that area is, what the geography is like. Absolutely, and, and the same goes for for the big policy agendas that are that are on kind of on everyone's minds right now. The idea that you can have a kind of universalist take on what it means to devolve power effectively rather than a very particularized one, one that's unconditional, but which understands that different places need different types of support and different types of settlement is bananas. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So she was also interested in innovation and creativity and how these are driven by local knowledge, um, specifically uh, um, whether that knowledge can be accurate can be accessed and how it can be accessed yeah and and this is this is such a sort of a classic sort of political economy perspective um and there's a big overlap with a lot of other political economists and economists here so so friedrich hayek is a is a is a, a big character here when we talk about knowledge problems and ostrom was just as immersed in 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 this sort of knowledge problem debate so there's a concept of economics that's very important, which is information asymmetry. You know, you try and go and buy a car and because the person selling you a car knows a hundred times more about cars than you do, the chances of you getting a good deal or knowing what you're doing well enough to, 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 to try and get a good deal are quite low. And yeah. some people think that information asymmetries blow the whole of, of economics, the whole of capitalism out of the water. And that's a slightly separate debate. But there's a different kind of level for, the, for that information problem, that knowledge problem to to emerge. Who who knows what? What is the relevant information? Do we always feel confident we know what all the relevant information might be? Or are there those Rumsfeldian <laughs> unknown unknowns out there that's still waiting to be discovered? Yes. Um, and so there's a kind of there's a bunch of really hard questions to ask ourselves if we start taking these knowledge problems seriously. Is the is the decision maker, is the person or the institution with the most responsibility for managing, designing, iterating some service or some asset, uh, the management of it? Are they also the people who have the best and most reliable and most complete knowledge and the best information about all the variables that are relevant to that system? 
Uh, and I think we know that, that it's impossible to always have a handle on every relevant variable. But I think the Astromian, the localist response here is to say, well, you, there's going to be tacit knowledge. There's going to be contextual understanding that's very widely distributed through the system and very specific from place to place. And that you're making a mistake if you don't find a way to access that, to plug into that and to incorporate that, at least incorporate that into your reasoning, if not to actually move decision making down to that scale. Now, that leads us to sort of innovation and creativity, right? Because the complex world with no panaceas, no one size fits all, no easy solutions that always work in every context is also one where if you allow people the autonomy to have local input and to do things locally and to think independently and even to diverge from each other a little bit, there's going to be some experimentation going on. People are going to be trying things in different ways and in different places. And this could be an engine room for innovation, for practices that catch fire and could work in different places or be adapted for different purposes. If you try to manage things centrally, you have a far more cumbersome, slow moving wheel that's turning there. One that is much less given to to innovation, to creating new ideas and new approaches that are really well adapted to the specific challenges that people face when trying to deliver and implement on the ideas that come from the center. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fascinating. I've got so many questions here that I want to, to ask you. The first is around where knowledge sits. So I think the core point here is that whilst local areas might not have all of the knowledge that may not be accessible, there may not be a mechanism to bring it together, they've certainly got a better chance of finding it and bringing it together than a national picture, which by and large will have to rely on averages and Mm. non-specifics. And one of my previous guests, Rob Webster, who's the chief exec lead for West Yorkshire and Harrogate Integrated Care System, um, he warned very firmly about the danger of relying on averages. Because if you look at averages in response to the pandemic, they may be telling you that as far as testing goes, as far as infections goes, we're doing fine, we're moving in the right direction. But actually, that average misses the specifics around certain communities, around certain conditions that people have that puts them at, at higher risk. And actually, that that national view, as opposed to Ostrom's local view, just has to work on, on averages and aggregation. It just can't get into that level of detail, which inevitably means that some people will not factor into to decision making. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we're we're seeing some of this play out now, which is if you if you try and design an economic recovery program to from from the the, the huge economic shock that we all had during this um, during this pandemic, as as we move towards recovery, the idea that you need the same set of policies to stimulate economic growth and to to restore some normality in Seven Oaks and Scarborough is yes. is it just Everyone in local government who we've spoken to as an organization that I've spoken to know that that's an absurdity. And the challenge in our current system, of course, is that to try and get some variation, to try and to mix things up and change the deal from place to place is an enormous challenge. It's something that's strongly resisted by government and by the system as it stands. But, yeah, that's exactly it. The the, the context is crucial for this. Yeah. And the second follow up question I had was on the point of innovation and the fact that local innovation is 
very powerful. It can look at the local set of circumstances and formulate a response to it and do it on such a scale that if it doesn't work, it can be stopped, the lessons learned, and you can move on. Whereas a national program that tries to do the same thing everywhere struggles with that. There are some good central government programs that have provided funding for local areas to do their own thing. So the one that springs to mind is one that I've been involved in and my organisation Mutual Ventures have been involved in, which is the Department for Education's Social Care Innovation Programme, where local areas applied for funding to do specific local projects that they designed. And I think something like that works really well, where you have that national infrastructure and funding, but actually allowing local areas to explore solutions to specific problems that they face. And Mm. if you get a bit more of that, it seems to be um, a more sensible way of of doing things. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And like you say, there are some there are some experiments now happening where where national resources are provided that can be then put to use in very contextual, very local ways. Yeah. and can achieve outcomes in that way the way that that drives innovation as you say is that one of the really underrated aspects of, of this approach is that risk mitigation aspect that you identify the the fear of a local failure emerging or a relative local failure emerging when something is tried and doesn't work quite as well the first time and needs to iterate is really overpriced in my view which is yes. the alternative is that you you try something what well, the alternative usually is that nothing ever gets tried at the national scale and it's so totally incremental that things just slip and slip and slip and grip is never achieved if you do actually manage to try something at the national scale failure is uh, a massively magnified downside because it's so much harder to rein in and to control for and to learn from and to and to figure out the variables for um so it's it's a really interesting kind of psychological thing really this 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 barrier against so it completely is i mean it's much easier to get the sack for not being logical than it is for lacking creativity or lacking innovation um it's easier to do the the kind of low risk thing but i think you know there are certainly councils and other public service organisations around the country that are really trying to, to break out of that. And it's yes. so important that we do. So just to give people some practical examples, can you give give me some idea, uh, some examples, really, of where Austrian's thinking has been successfully applied? I mean, so here's the thing is that Austrian's life work was identifying these examples and exploring them and so i can if you've got 10 hours i can give you 10 hours of, uh, of <laughs> examples there are some absolute classic examples that ostrom herself pointed to again and again um and there tended to be examples not of people taking an ostrom idea as published in an ostrom paper or something and say oh let's change things here and see it's stuff that was already happening and ostrom just said oh yeah here's another example i mean the the one one absolutely classic example is the case of Maine lobster fisheries, where the lobster fisheries that got together, had a conversation with each other, agreed some rules of use, sidestepped a tragedy of the commons. So there, there are lots of places where lobster fishing just totally destroys the lobster population, doesn't have enough rules. Everyone's got a, a downside incentive to try and maximise their take. A couple of years later, there's no lobster left. Work dries up. 
the town declines, the lobsters disappear, they move on. I, well, whatever lobsters do when they're overfished, they 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 have a bad time. Even there's a there's but there's case studies of where you can do it completely differently without any intervention, without any regulation, without anyone holding your hand that you can actually manage a resource in that way. So the main lobsters are probably the one that, that people listening to this might already be familiar um, with. And this is Maine in, in America. In, in the United States, yeah, Maine, yeah. Maine, Maine US. So that, that would involve the local fishermen coming together and saying, right, look, if we don't do something about this ourselves, we're going to do ourselves out of a job and our future generations out, out of a job. And so they self-regulated, essentially. Is that what happened? Exactly. And it, right. and it's, te- it's textbook self-governance is the idea that you if you just start building a trusting relationship if you have the conditions where you can you can build up a kind of a a history of trust of of a relationship between individuals between organizations you can start achieving very different kinds of things together such as shepherding a resource that everyone else is totally ruining and totally overusing um one really interesting metric for the kind of because the, I, people might be listening and saying, well, yeah, lobsters, whatever. One really interesting metric for all of this is time. It's a sort of a tricky one. But if you're looking at the kind of the success of a system, it's longevity is a is a pretty interesting one to go with. If things stick around for a certain period of time and they're not outcompeted by some other approach or they're not replaced by some other approach, that might be an indication that you're onto something. And. Ostrom identified um, self-governance of of resources, self-governance of communities that didn't go back decades, didn't even go back hundreds of years, but went back thousands of years and are still going now. Some of these. Yes. So genuinely ancient communities uh, and community approaches in places like Japan and Spain and and really old ones in places like like Switzerland, where a watercourse or a forest was being better sustained by some people than others. And when you dig into it, it's because they'd settled some rules together and they all had a stake in those rules. They all understood what their skin in the game was. They all understood the local conditions and trusted each other enough to get on with it. And and there's plenty of evidence that those places go strong and are efficient. But the fact that they're still going is evidence in itself that there's something sustainable about this approach to sustainability. Yeah. Um, one case study um that's a little less old but is worth looking at is management of water courses in nepal where community run ones and self-governed ones are demonstrably more efficient uh, and more sustainable than the ones run by the government or the ones run uh, privately and so there's there's plenty of evidence out there if you want to look for it of, of this stuff happening around the world a bunch of the work i've been doing has been about trying to seek out good examples of something similar happening within the UK. One of the things to say is that like for some of the reasons we've already mentioned, the UK is kind of a hostile environment for this kind of self-governance, um, but that there is some stuff happening. So the report we put out last year, it's called Think Big, Act Small um, from New Local. It, it identified some interesting examples of stuff happening. So one that I would point to that feels like a classic kind of Ostrom example is an organization called BERT, the Brookham Emergency Response Team. That's a little uh, village in the south of England. And they had some terrible floods around the same time as lots of other people had some terrible floods uh, in the last decade. 
And their response was to do full on self-governance Ostromian planning. I mean, they didn't, with none of the academic terminology around it, but they organize themselves. They support themselves. They've engaged in water course management, which is kind of a common pool resource commons problem. Um, and I mean, the growth and the development of what they've done. This is a completely independent community. They've now incorporated themselves into a little charity. Um, they're, they're, they're funding former members, young people to go off and study disaster management at university. <laughs> They've just turned into this whole thing. So that there's, there is evidence of stuff that you can point to here in the UK as well. Yes. Um, would you say Ostrom's thinking is more applicable to something like, I'm thinking over the course of the, the pandemic, mutual aid groups that have formed, or is her thinking, is she, is she also interested in, some of the debates we're having around around devolution and combined authorities, or is that still too large a scale? Is it kind of that really ultra local stuff that she's very interested in? I, I would argue that that she has insights for both of those contexts. I mean, so so the mutual aid phenomenon is such a sort of self evident proof of some of the stuff she was saying about the capacity for communities to be more kind of civically engaged and to be more mutually interdependent and to really capitalize that on a strength rather than a weakness. Uh, and that hyper local way of working is something that we all need to learn lots of lessons about in the wake of the, the pandemic. But in terms of the structure of local government itself, this takes us back to that complexity point. Um, there's a there's a seriously um, unpleasant word that Ostrom used called polycentrism. Or polycentricity. Right. And the point there, it, it comes back to this no panaceas, no no quick fixes thing. You need all the different layers. You need a kind of complexity of layers in place for a meaningful um, and innovative process to play out in the way that we manage our systems and we manage the things that are important to us. So understanding the different tiers of, of local government and getting that right. And, and crucially, the thing that will determine how right a different kind of structure is is the the general approval level, the way that people respond to and make use of and understand and find transparent the institutions that they interact with. Getting that right is is crucial. It's not just about the hyper local. It's about the entire kind of nested series of institutions and organizations and governance that sit above that hyper local level that find ways to either facilitate it or to get out of its way as appropriate. That seems to be that seems to be the key to striking that balance. You need a bit of a, a bit of a bit of organizational mess almost needs to be allowed for in order for meaningful diversity and local solutions to prosper. That idea of organizational mess, I think, is, is, is really important. And quite often people approach a problem with the idea that the mess needs tidying up. And quite often the mess is what makes it work in some yeah. ways. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm so sympathetic to that on some level because it, I, I sometimes I'm so struck by how messy the mess can be and how organically it emerged and how it's been, you know, it's this cludge and a fix and a fudge. And the thing that works over there doesn't work over here. And isn't that a problem? And do people really understand whether it's their district or their county that does this bit of the service that they're trying to use? The answer is usually no. <laughs> and so there's an argument for simplicity in that it aids is, democratic transparency. Are. But there's also an argument for trying to balance between that simplicity and also the kind of the emergent mess 
if you like, that that complexity of solutions and overlapping solutions and approaches that allow people to navigate their way through to the best possible outcome that works in the best possible way for them. That's an empower. That's about empowerment as well. It's the the worst thing you can do is simplify to the point where everything is handled monopolistically and you simply try to hand solutions to people on a plate. It just everyone should know by now that that doesn't work. Yes. Um, so I'm going to ask you to apply some of Ostrom's thinking to some current challenges. So I've got a couple of things in mind. So let, let's start with climate change. Right. So, I mean, Ostrom herself was fascinated by and engaging with the climate crisis, the climate change policy agenda um, in the years before she died. The very last article she wrote um, and that got published, I think, on the day she died was a piece called Green from the Grassroots. And when was that? Sorry, I can't remember if you've said when she, she died. 2013. 2013. Actually, hang on, let me just check that. <laughs> 2012, 2012. 2012, yeah. She died in 2012. So that this piece that came out literally got published on the day she died. It's called Green from the Grassroots. What it really is about, and it reflects a lot of what she was saying and writing at the time, was that most of what she was responding to, the kind of the, the, the category of the challenge that she was addressing was this idea of a of a coordination problem of a of a collective action problem. So the collective action problem of climate change, if you think of climate change as one big tragedy of the commons where all of us. And I mean, us as individuals and also us as places and as nation states and as corporations have these massive incentives to use as many of Earth's resources and to pump out as much carbon as we possibly can and to, and to do a lot of damage along the way. And we have very few meaningful resources not to. The, the incentive not to do that is obviously to avoid environmental degradation, to avoid the terrible outcomes of climate change. But that's such a long way off. And it's, it's in so the future, abstract. yeah. And it's, it's in the future and it's, and it's in the aggregate, right? Because you can always just say, well, little old me, I didn't do anything wrong. Yes. Uh, little old me, I can't make any difference. So it's impersonal, it's massive, it's abstracted, it's distant. Um, and it's a massive tragedy of the commons in, a, in, a, in the classic way. And no one, not even Ostrom, would dispute that this is a meaningful tragedy of the commons because we can see from international efforts to address climate change and to respond to climate change that it's really difficult to get America, China, Brazil, to get everyone around the table and agreeing on a really crunchy set of reforms and behaviours in response. So, first of all, the collective action problem is almost totally unsolvable at that scale. At the global scale, there are just too many variables and too many differences to overcome. Secondly, almost all the behaviours, almost all the changes that need to happen either to mitigate or to adapt to climate change are going to have to play out locally. Yes. So resilience is kind of a, is, is, resilience is local, if you like. Um, and achieving resilience is a, is a local affair and reducing carbon uh, emissions is something that can happen household by household, place by place, town by town, district by district, not just at the scale of massive corporations. The behaviour, by the way, of massive corporations that leads to, to carbon emissions and to greenhouse gas emissions is entirely driven by individual uh, and local spending habits and consumption habits. So shifting them is still going to be an important part of how things change. So re-injecting a little bit of that kind of grassroots understanding of what it means to make systemic shifts happen in the aggregate is really what Eleanor Ostrom said in response to climate change. You need to underscore not the terrible, distant, grinding, doom mongering threat, but the 
the potential upsides of adapting our way of life, of innovating, of transforming our lives and our economy, of doing things in a slightly different way that isn't just good for the planet, but is also good good for us. Yes. Um, of of consuming in a different way, of of using that car less and, and reaping the, the personal benefits of maybe getting a little bit more fresh air and exercise, of having fresher air because you're emitting less carbon. Uh, there's a there's a whole suite of reasons why it's good to have more forests around you and to have communities involved in getting those forests planted. And that you can talk about those reasons for half an hour before you even say, oh, by the way, it'll also be a powerful way to combat greenhouse gas emissions and to build up local resilience against flooding, both of which are going to be very important parts of the conversation we have in future. I think this is very relevant because pretty much every council in the country has declared a climate emergency and some have plans, some are developing plans. But from what you've said and just the logic of what you've said, those plans are going to be what makes the difference between whether we actually get anywhere with this now obviously the government will have a role to play but those local plans are going to be so important and there's just no room no excuse for having that as you put it little old me mentality that you know well i'll just keep using single-use plastic sure that's not going to make any difference i think that's your point and it's really well made so i want to ask you about the second area that i'm interested in in the context of applying Eleanor Ostrom's thinking to current challenges, and that's leveling up. Yeah, well, this is leveling up is a is a could be a, an absolute classic if we get it right, because it could it could be an opportunity to demonstrate all of these important claims that Ostrom and some others have, have made. The idea that regional leveling up can be a universalist policy base is. It's sort of absurd when you think about it. And we've talked about this already. Different places need different things. And understanding what local strengths are and what local needs are and playing directly to them is going to be a crucial part of achieving levelling up if levelling up is to be achieved. Um, what what we can't afford is is sort of a rising tide raises all boats sort of mentality. Um, we also can't afford the other angle on this, which is a sort of a, a deep egalitarianism that tries to reapportion productivity or tries to reapportion growth and uh, and economic development in a way that subtracts from some places and then tries to lend it to others. Because the, the arbitrariness of that process, unless it's handled incredibly carefully, will do more economic damage than good overall. And leveling down isn't the agenda. Leveling up is right. You can you yes. can achieve equality by leveling down all too easily. So there's a there's it's an enormous challenge. If you if you really want to take this whole leveling up agenda seriously, it's an enormous challenge. What's really needed, and I think the Ostromian kind of angle on this would be that the people who are most likely to know what is going to what is going to trigger economic development in particular places are the people and the institutions and the organizations that are already working there and already doing their best to do that. So local government and the organizations they partner with locally. Those are the people who need to be empowered. Now, there's some understanding of this, I think, potentially already in government in its in its leveling up plans. And as things become clearer over time, maybe, maybe, maybe things will improve. But what's needed is particularism, is specific support that matches 
the reality on the ground in different places because the reality will be different from place to place. And it's also something on a much grander scale than, say, the leveling up fund that's already being uh, rolled out, which is which is it's not tiny, but it's also not it's not the kind of game changer that you want. And it's far too institutional in its focus. It's far too competitive in its way it portions resources. But something like that could make a big difference. And finding ways, getting getting finding opportunities to support councils, for example, that are looking for ways to and this overlaps with your last question, to level up in a way that is both environmentally friendly and good for the local economy is going to be really, really important. And it's going to involve rewriting a lot of instincts at at the scale of Whitehall about what it takes to get things done. I think that's right. And one of my particular interest areas is how central government interacts with local government in an effective way. And I think we've given uh, a number of examples here during this discussion about central government funding being applied in a very local way, driven by people who know what they're talking about locally. And I think levelling up is trying to do that, although, as you say, it is it, it is competitive. But there are other government programmes that have tried to take this same approach. And I think there's a lot to learn for central central policymakers as we get what I think is going to be a three-year comprehensive spending review, which will undoubtedly result in central government programmes. The design of those programmes, I think, for the next three years will be absolutely critical. And some of the things that we've talked about today, I think, would be useful for for central government policymakers to to bear in mind. Um, And just on this point, then, I guess, as a final question, do you think that the government national government, let's say, is paying attention to this thinking? It's well, it's very hard to know what the government's thinking from from one moment to the next. Um, There are some, I think, who have noted these lessons from the pandemic in particular that we've been talking about, the risks that are inherent in over centralizing the response, the opportunities you miss by doing that, the the huge assets that we have at the local scale in local institutions, local government and informal neighborhood scale community groups, voluntary work, the massive amount of potential energy there that isn't really being used properly, that isn't being unleashed and facilitated properly. Um, but there are signs of the government. List. I mean, Danny Kruger, by all accounts, is a person, uh, an MP with with the ear of the prime minister and who has, was asked by the Prime Minister to to make recommendations. It, to some extent, the levelling up fund is a response to Danny Kruger's recommendations to the to the government about trying to capitalise and maximise community impact. Yes. Um, I recently um, contributed to a paper that seemed to be taken on board by, by some of the right people in the middle of government, in the centre of government, um, for the Commission for Smart Government, which was talking about a lot of these similar things, talking about levelling up, talking about net zero and what the local picture looks like. So, yeah, there, I think there is scope here. There, like, like we said at the start, we're having a bit of a community power localism moment, and I'm hoping that there are some people listening in government uh, as well. I hope so, too. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. The policy nerds out there will have absolutely loved that conversation. I know I certainly did. There are a couple of specific points I'd like to make. The first is that we have a spending review coming up on the 27th of October. And out of that will flow 
multiple central government programs. And when the very talented civil servants who will be tasked with designing and ruling out those programs are doing so, I think it's really important that they take on board the teachings of Eleanor Ostrom and the importance of having a central government program that also allows a degree of flexibility for how it's implemented locally. Because after all, it is the people who are working day in, day out in a local area who will understand the context. Eleanor Ostrom talks about information asymmetry. This is why a lot of central government programs don't work. There's a central design that is based on averages and aggregates of information that there's then an attempt made to roll this out nationally. And actually, in certain contexts, it just doesn't work. So there has to be that balance between national and central government policy aim and the ability to be flexible in terms of how things are implemented locally. And finally, just a quick reminder of two of the key current policy areas where the thinking of Eleanor Ostrom is particularly pertinent. The first one is climate change. Yes, central government will need to have a policy on climate change. It will need to do the things at a national level around regulation, around the law that it needs to do. But the real impact will be made at a community level and an individual level and how people take responsibility themselves. The second example is obviously levelling up. I am certainly a firm believer that whilst central government can provide funding and overarching aims, responsibility and empowerment must be given to communities to decide exactly how their area can best be levelled up. Because after all, the people working in a local area, and that is not just public servants, but business leaders, community leaders, third sector organization leaders, they are the ones that understand the context and they understand what will work and what will not, and also what the history is. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that one. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter or on LinkedIn, or register on the website to make sure you don't miss any episodes in the future. And you might want to go back and listen to some of the older episodes, brilliant interviews with people like Donna Hall, Chris Naylor, Rob Webster, and many more.